Hello, hello. Amen. Thankful that Christ is our great high priest who intercedes for us, bears our sins and our sorrows, and for that beautiful song we were able to just hear and meditate on as we uh, gave our gifts to the Lord. I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37 today, a passage that uh, simply titled The Good Samaritan, and many of you are so familiar with the story, you could tell me or anyone else what happens in this story without even really having to think about it. Uh, I drove past a hospital the other day that is named Good Samaritan Hospital after this passage. This is the only place in the Bible where this story is told, so uh, this was the passage that people had in mind when they named that hospital and probably a wide variety of other hospitals and things like that as well. But it's a story that we need to examine together today and apply to our hearts, and I pray the Lord will use in a powerful way in your life. If you're not familiar with this story, you have a treat in store for you with uh, some surprises perhaps that that this uh, story includes. So follow along with me if you would as I read Luke chapter 10. I'll read aloud. You're welcome to read silently. So I read Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. The story of politics in Illinois, as it is in many other places, is the story of corruption is the story of people saying one thing and doing another, saying, yes, we uphold justice for the poor, or we uphold rights for this group or that group, and on and on, you know, financial responsibility, and then they do the exact opposite of what they are saying. What we say we believe is often undercut by the way that we live. You know people who have said one thing their whole lives and then shown themselves to actually believe something entirely differently or at least not let their beliefs affect what they actually do. 
But how we live demonstrates our relationship with God, shows whether our relationship with God is true, whether it is genuine, in other words, or whether it is false, whether it's just words coming out of our mouths, but not actually coming from our hearts. So how we live demonstrates whether our relationship with God is true or false. How we live demonstrates whether our love for God, in other words, is genuine or false. In our passage this morning, we see a man who wants to say he loves God with all of his heart. But when push comes to shove, he actually would have a really hard time showing that by the way that he lives with other people. So in this passage, in verses 25 through 28, Jesus introduces uh, the story that essentially carries the weight of this passage, the, the bulk of the space of this passage, by saying that there's a man who is a lawyer, which simply means he's not a lawyer like you might understand. They might go to a um, a law office named something, 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 and someone uh, in order to get legal help. This would be someone who specifically is, is uh, especially trained in the Word of God, in the law, in what we know as the Pentateuch, which is the fancy word for the first five books of the Old Testament. So Genesis through Deuteronomy. A lawyer was someone who was especially adept at, uh, at working through issues of the law, that kind of law, not just you know, laws of, of real estate or any number of other issues that we have lawyers for today. And you have this man who knows God's Word super well. And his intent is to show that he probably knows it better than Jesus did. That's what he wants to prove. And we see this in this first line of this passage when we see that he stood up to put him to the test. Well, the fact that he stood up means that he's sitting in probably a synagogue-type setting. And everybody's sitting there on the floor, possibly even in a circle or a half circle around Jesus, hearing him teach probably from the law. Uh, of course, it could possibly be from the prophets or from the writings. But here Jesus is teaching from the Old Testament, what we know is the Old Testament. And this man wants to make a point. He wants to show that Jesus is a fool, that he actually doesn't know the law as well as this man does. And so he stands up to put Jesus to the test. He does not have pure motives. We would call these very impure motives. Disingenuous, we would say about this. This man is disingenuous. And he asks Jesus to test him, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Look, let me find some way I can catch this guy, this imposter, Jesus, and show that I actually know more than he does. And Jesus does what we should do. He goes back to the Word of God. And he actually, instead of answering the question, he just asks another question in order to answer the question. And I think this is a beautiful instinct that we as Christians should be seeking to develop as well, that when we have a question about our lives or about something going on in the world, we go back to the Word of God every single time. Not, how do I feel about this? Not, what do I hear is a popular idea in the society today? What does God say about this? And that's exactly what Jesus does in verse 26. What is written in the law? You're an expert in the law, so you tell me what God says. How do you read it? And the man who is a lawyer, a good lawyer it appears, gets an A plus on his answer. He quotes two verses from the Old Testament. He quotes Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, which we, we uh, know as the Shema, which is, means it's a Hebrew word for hear. And so it starts off with the word hear, O Israel. You should love God with your whole heart, with everything in you. And then he gives a second verse from Leviticus 19, verse 18. Of course, they didn't have verses at this time, but 
He knew the law so well, he knew where to go. He could navigate it the way you can navigate back streets in a large city to get from point A to point B when traffic is bad. He knew how to get where he wanted to go. He knew that the whole law, all five books from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are summed up in two words, we could say. Love God and love your neighbor. And so he summarizes God's word that way. And in verse 28, Jesus says, you got it right. You're a good lawyer. Congratulations, basically. You, you said it correctly. So if you want to inherit eternal life, you want to have life with God forever. And who wouldn't? Well then, just go and do what you said. Love God and love your neighbor perfectly. Uh, I had a conversation a few years ago with someone who uh, wanted nothing to do with eternal life. But when someone says, I don't want to live forever. I want to just die and be dead and just not have to worry about anything anymore. What I would say is you're, you're not understanding the options well enough. You have two options. You can live forever or you can die forever. But you never fully die. You're suffering forever apart from God who loves you and who made you. And so if the option is to have that kind of eternal death or to have eternal life, yes, you definitely do want eternal life. You want what we sang about, the blessings we sang about of forgiveness of sins, of life forever with God, of, of lack of sorrow, lack of pain, lack of mourning any longer. Those things go away in eternal life, in what the Bible lays out for us as the new creation. You don't want the alternative as much as you might say you do. But this man obviously did want eternal life. This man obviously did understand his Bible, his Old Testament, and know that everyone instinctively wants what is true, what is good, what is right, which means you want God in a sense. Of course, we know our hearts are bent against God, and that's a very different issue what I'm saying here. I'm not saying any of us naturally desires God in that sense, but just bear with me there. But Jesus acknowledges this man obviously knows what he wants. He wants eternal life as opposed to eternal death. And the man who started off with impure motives now seems to continue to operate on that level of like, well, in that case, maybe I'm already good enough. Maybe I've got eternal life in the bag then based on how I've lived so far. And so in verse 29, he says, desiring to justify himself, Luke tells us. He's desiring to show that he has already done what is required. He said to Jesus, and so who is my neighbor? And so again, he's a good lawyer. Lawyers know how to work the loopholes, knows how to find that little spot where, well, if you apply it this way, then I've already obeyed the law in this way. And so uh, in his mind, a neighbor was a fellow Jewish person, a fellow Israelite. Maybe he's not even limiting it to just the people he knows, but just anybody in my country, anybody who is Jewish the way I am, that person is my neighbor. And if that's the case, then I am good to go. Maybe that's what he's thinking. And so Jesus replies, again, not by giving a direct answer to who is my neighbor. He could have given a one-line synopsis. We understand that, right? But Jesus wanted to teach, wanted to weigh on the person's conscience and Uh, the statement that someone told me probably two decades ago was accusations harden the heart, questions stir the conscience. And so here he asks a question. And he he, he does, uh, actually, he does that earlier. Uh, And here in this case, in in response to this question, he, he gives a story. And it's a great story. 
And it's a shocking story for this individual because he would have been kind of instinctively taught to expect that the way Jesus is going to tell this story is you're going to have a priest come by, you're going to have a Levite come by, and you're going to have an Israelite come by. Just your standard from Israel sermon a few weeks ago, your, um, what's the guy's name? Tohu Abuhu, or what was the, the, the Israelite guy who basically just means a certain guy, just no name, Joe Schmo, remember? And um, El, Alboni Palmoni? There you go. Beautiful name. And uh, that's, what this, that's what this Israelite would have expected him to say. You've got a priest, you've got a Levite, you've got Talmoni Almoni. And instead, Jesus totally turns it upside down. You have a priest, you have an Israelite, and you have a Samaritan. And we're going to walk through what maybe was going through the head of that priest. Again, this is a, uh, a parable here, so this didn't, as far as we know, actually happen in real life. But what could have been going through his head if this had happened? We'll get to that in a second. But let's just back up and say, so what's a Samaritan? Like that doesn't really mean anything to us if, again, if we aren't very familiar with the Bible, which is totally fine. Well, uh, essentially, hundreds of years before this, you had uh, a group of people who uh, intermarried, broke God's law by intermarrying with God's enemies, essentially, and those people became Samaritans. And then you have on the other side of things, people who were trying to fastidiously obey God's word. Those would be the Judeans, from which we get the word Jew, Jewish, and you have these people who hate these people and these people who hate these people to the point that when Samaritans build a temple, the Jews come and burn it down. To the point that when, as we talked about in a previous passage, when Jesus uh, sent someone ahead of him to go uh, to Samaria, remember that, um, to go through Samaria, we, we talked about the fact that sometimes Samaritans would kill Jewish people just for walking through their territory. Like, these were not good friends. Uh, maybe one way you could look at this in a very, um, you know, to this moment context would be, this would be like a Russian soldier uh, lying on the ground in Ukraine and two Russian guys walk past him and the Ukrainian guy is the one who goes and tends to him. And he's a soldier. Again, this is a guy who hasn't just been, you know, passively watching what's going on in Ukraine right now. He's actually involved in it, okay? So that level of hatred for each other, like I don't want anything to do with that guy, is what we have in this passage of a Jew being tended to by a Samaritan. But what could have possibly been the motives for the priest to just walk by and the Levite to just walk by? So the priest is the person who offers sacrifices to God, who gives uh, you know, prayers of, of thanksgiving to God and intercedes for the people, who uh, regularly goes into the temple and atones for the sins of the people by the shedding of blood. And we could go on and on through books like Exodus and Leviticus, to talk in more depth about this. But this person knew God's word super well and occupied a very um, prestigious place in Israelites' society, and he decided to just skirt around this guy who's laying there on the ground. Why would he do that? Well, again, we don't exactly know, but one possible reason is for him to touch a person who was dead, and maybe he didn't know if he was dead or not because you know his eyes were both black from the beating and uh, maybe he's bleeding out his side, and who knows what all is going on. Maybe that guy's dead. I can't touch him because I would become ceremonially unclean, and then I wouldn't be able to do my job. Maybe that's what he's thinking. And, you know, boy, I've just got to do my job before God. This is a very important job. But he knew the law well enough to know he can't touch a dead person, but not well enough to know that the way you show true love for God is by loving your neighbor. 
The Levite, similarly, he wasn't uh, as high up the, the ladder, we could say. If a priest is at the top of the ladder, the Levite would be the next step down. And he would be the kind of guy who uh, keeps unclean people out of the temple. He's kind of like the policeman for the temple. He's also the one who probably brings in the sacrifices for, uh, or brings in the animals for the sacrifices. So maybe he's going out to round up the next sheep or something like that. So the Levite is just kind of like a, a helper in the temple, but not quite as high as the priest. But he does the same thing. He looks down at the guy, possibly dead. Maybe there's nothing I can do to help him. Or maybe he had even worse thoughts. Like, well, he was asking for it. You know, he was walking by himself on this road. He shouldn't have been doing that at this time of day or something like that. Maybe he was just looking out for himself. Obviously, robbers have been here and beaten him. Maybe they're just hiding around the corner and I should keep moving before they get me to. Who knows what his motives might have been. But then you have this third person come, the despised, hated, disgusting, dirty Samaritan. Spiritually speaking, all of those things, disgusting and dirty. And he comes to this helpless man who is just trying to go home, perhaps, from perhaps offering his own sacrifices in Jerusalem. And he comes to him, and when he comes to him, he offers significant help. He shows what this passage calls compassion. He shows mercy. Do you see Jesus in this passage? I think we should see him in two, in, in two characters. We should see him in the man who was beaten and stripped and left alone. Jesus endured all three of those elements. Jesus himself was stripped and beaten, surrounded by robbers when he was hanging on the cross, and left alone, left half dead and then eventually to die. We should also see Jesus, though, in the Samaritan himself. Jesus was himself the good Samaritan who willingly humbled himself, gave all he had, laid down his rights, his reputation, and served the helpless. So here this man takes him to an inn. I actually had my son Grant laid this out in uh, Legos this week. Lots of different characters, even switching out different people's faces. Like, here's the guy before he gets beat up. Here he is with bandages on his head and things like that. And, uh, of course, a horse to put him on. And so he laid all this out for me. One day, he, I think it was Friday, he goes, so, Dad, do you want me to stay home to work on your speech? That's the way he put it. Or should I go to school? Like, yeah, you should go to school. So he, you know, looking for an out any way he can get it. It's very important that he lays out this Lego scene for me. But... Uh, he laid it out very carefully. It was, it was encouraging. But what you have is this man who, who carries him away to an inn. And what we can tell from, from historical resources would be that he basically paid for about a month to two months worth of a hotel stay for this guy, saying, here's the food, here's the clothing, here's the medicine, as much as you have medicine at that time, the, the wine and the uh, oil. Here's what you need. Take care of him. I'll come back in a few weeks, a few months. And if there's anything that you've spent on him more than, than I've already given you, then I'll pay for that later on as well. And so what we have in this passage then is Jesus putting into a, a tangible scene a command that he gave to his disciples a few chapters earlier. And I'm just going to read from Luke 6. Perhaps you were here probably back in early December, I would have to say, when I preached from verses 27 through 36 of chapter 6. And there we have Jesus saying, if you love those who love you, such as a Jewish person loving a Jewish person, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them, such as a Samaritan loving a Samaritan. 
And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. And here you have a person doing exactly what Jesus commanded earlier to do. But maybe you have have read this story many times before, and maybe even hearing me read it aloud again today and discuss some of the details of it a little bit has you a little concerned based on what Jesus says in verse 28 when the man says, what should I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, love God and love your neighbor, and then you'll have eternal life. Uh, by, by which Jesus says, do this and you will live. There's your eternal life for you. Well, that doesn't sound like what we believe, is it? What I would say is this, this is doing two things. One is it's showing this incredibly high bar that even the best of priests, even the best of Christians in our day could never possibly perfectly fulfill. So it is raising the bar so high that no one could say, oh yeah, I have perfect, perfectly mastered that. The other thing it's doing, though, is it's telling this man the gospel. Maybe if you take the words, love God with your whole being, with your whole heart, which is a word the Bible uses to just describe the whole person internally, love God with all that you are. If you replace those words with repent and believe, are you actually losing anything? No, they're synonymous terms. To repent and believe is to love God with your whole heart to say, I desperately need God to rescue me. I could never possibly fulfill the demands of this law on my own. And so I turn from my sin and I hate it. And I put all my hope in Christ alone. That is loving God with your whole heart. Of course, we could also, loving, we could also say that loving God with your whole heart is listening to His Word rather than to your own reasoning or to the reasoning of others. It means obviously, as well, to to love your neighbor as yourself. And keep in mind that this is not saying you need to love yourself like it's a command. The Bible never commands you to love yourself. The Bible is acknowledging that you already do that. You love yourself more than anybody. This isn't a command to love yourself. This is an acknowledgement that you already do. And then to go, it is a command to go and love others the way you love yourself. What Jesus is pointing out is that when we ignore the plight of others, we're simply revealing our true colors. We're simply saying one thing out of one side of our mouths and another thing out of the other side of our mouths. We're demonstrating that our relationship with God is not what we say it is when we can look at someone's plight and ignore it. But the gist of this passage then, to put it in one sentence, is that those who follow Jesus, which is how I've started just about every summary of a passage over the last several months, those who follow Jesus lay down their lives by sacrificially loving even their enemies. Those who follow Jesus lay down their lives by sacrificially loving even their enemies. And so that puts the weight on us, doesn't it? It kind of makes us have to wrestle with, do I love even my family members? the way I say I do. And certainly, do I love my enemies the way I say I do? 
And maybe we should drive this pretty close to home here. How are you doing loving fellow church members? You know, we can talk a lot about how we may give to a charitable organization or even maybe volunteer at a particular kind of charity. Those are good things to do. Those are good applications of this passage. But from the passage that Terry Frank read for us this morning, how are you doing loving your fellow church members? Which may even just mean getting to know who they are and saying hello to them on Sunday and knowing something about their life so that you can interact with them about that and ask them, how is your week? How are your children doing, whether young or old? Uh, How is your job, whether it's a new job or one you've had for decades? How is your home holding up, whether it's one that you just bought or one that you've owned for a long time or perhaps uh, something that you rent or something? But those are the types of questions you can encourage other people with, but probably only once you actually know who they are. And so that's where where I would encourage you to start is just going through, whether it be the church directory app or the church directory that Caleb Palin is finishing up and will have in our hands very soon, uh, going through that and trying to get to know each person in the directory. We're not a huge church. We hope we continue to grow. But in the meantime, it's a great opportunity to get to know uh, just about everybody in our church, if not everybody. And so how are you doing loving your church members? That would be uh, one application of this. Uh, another good question, I, I do want to commend our church, would be how would we do when we, when we have an opportunity to help someone who is in a desperate physical state? And one person that comes to mind is a guy named Ricky who came here uh, for many weeks in a row, both Sunday morning and Wednesday night, uh, in the fall, starting in October, I believe, and then into November, maybe even into early December. And I was so encouraged by the way you all loved him and gave him clothes and gave him food and took him to meals and gave him rides. And we can go on. You all served him very well. And then he disappeared. <laughs> and uh, when I went to the, the homeless shelter that was kind of organizing his care in, in a high-level way, uh, they basically said, this is who he is. He has disappeared at least seven times in the past where we all thought he was dead and never would hear from him again. And then one day he walks in. And so they said, don't take it personally. Thank you very much for your church loving him so well and things like that. But you may never see him again. But who knows, he probably will show up again as well. Well, then he showed up a couple of months ago and started uh, attending again. I think he was here for one or maybe two Sundays. And again, if it was two, then the second of them, he said, and maybe if it was just the one, he said, I'm here for good. You're going to see me a whole lot. And he hasn't shown up again since then. So who knows? Once again, he may be like this Samaritan or like this Jewish man laying in a ditch somewhere. I hope not. We have no idea. The homeless shelter has no idea where he is. But he was loved well here. And so I commend you for your ministry to him. I also wanted to just kind of give you that update. We don't know where he is. And if he comes back, we'll continue to try to love him. But we have no idea and have no way to contact him. But thank you for for putting this passage into practice in that way. And so I want to commend you in that way because I I don't want anybody to walk away thinking like, he just wants more and more from us. He's never content. I am so thankful for you as a church family and uh, for the way you serve others. But when we look at a passage like this one and and we see Jesus' answer, go love God perfectly and love your neighbor perfectly. Maybe you just think to yourself, there's no way I could possibly obey that. And that is correct. Again, to back up, those that Christ has made alive by the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart, He does equip you to obey and to love in ways that are overwhelming and beautiful. But I do want to 
to read a, a passage from a guy named J.C. Ryle. And uh, he was a pastor in a certainly a very different place at a very different time in human history. But as he was talking about what it is to um, bear the cost of following Christ, one of the ways he discusses this is that it will cost you self-righteousness. You're going to have to lay down this idea that you can do what God has perfectly called you to do. You're going to have to lay that idea down. He says it will cost him his self-righteousness. He must cast away all pride and high thoughts and conceit of his own goodness. He must be content to go to heaven as a poor sinner saved only by free grace and owing all to the merit and righteousness of another, Jesus. He must really feel as well as say the prayer book words. We talk about the Book of Common Prayer in England that he has erred and gone astray like a lost sheep, that he has left undone the things he ought to have done and done the things he ought not to have done, and that there is no health in him. He must be willing to give up all trust in his own morality. Let me just stop here. Let me just make sure we're all paying attention here because this is so desperately important for us. If you're going to follow Jesus and you're going to say, I am a Christian, I'm going to repent of my sin and put my faith in him, which we urge you to do if you've never done that. We urge you to continue to do that if you call yourself a Christian, if you are a believer. But part of what that means is being willing to say, I can never do enough to save myself. He must be willing to give up all trust in his own morality, respectability, praying, Bible reading, church going, and sacrament receiving, and to trust in nothing but Jesus Christ. Those are sobering words because we want to be able to say, see, I I did all I could. Okay, but that's not good enough. Only Jesus can save you. Your morality, your righteousness, your putting your kids in a Christian school, your doing X, Y, and Z is not enough to save you. I seek to love God and I sin every day. We desperately need Christ. And his righteousness alone. And so this passage shows us the urgency of turning to Christ. And perhaps there's someone here today who's never done that. Maybe you have objections and that would be, maybe you would explain why you've never put your faith in Christ because you have a certain set of objections, something you can't quite believe yet. And if that's the case, we would love to talk to you about those objections, whatever they may be. And, and perhaps they're going to be such good objections to the Christian faith that I'm going to need to take some time to think through. How am I going to answer that question? But I will get back to you. But maybe we just need to lay our objections aside and say, you know what? I can't perfectly understand that yet, but I'm going to put my faith in Jesus alone. I am going to turn from my sin. And if you've never done that, we urge you to do that today. There's no reason you have to wait. There's no magical day you need to wait for. You don't need to wait for Christmas or Easter. Those are good days, but every day is just as good as any other day to put your faith in Jesus. What Jonah would say is, salvation is of the Lord. And what Jesus says in in Luke chapter 4 when he's preaching a sermon is he says, this is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. In other words, the opportunity is available to you now and we encourage you and urge you to put your faith in Christ alone. Perhaps you've heard the story of during the Civil War in 18... 62 at the, the Battle of Fredericksburg in Virginia. Uh, it was a very ugly, bloody fight. 
at uh, Marie's Heights. And so you have the Confederate soldiers at the top of this uh, hill. I've stood there. I've been there. There's a brick wall that's still there, ancient bricks, you know, hundreds of years old here at this point, 150 or so years old at least. And uh, you have the Confederate soldiers lining up behind a hill, looking down a hill, or look, lining up behind a brick wall, I mean, looking down a hill. They obviously were in the better position. And so the Confederate soldiers are up in that position, whereas the Union soldiers from the north are just running across an open field, getting mowed down. It's in December of 1862. And eventually nightfall came, the shooting stopped, and you just hear the moans of people who have been desperately wounded, perhaps are dying out there. Then you have a man from the north who goes down the hill and starts to minister to the northern soldiers, bringing them water, filling up one canteen after another, and taking water all across this field. And people there that day would say that there was such a, an outcry of, of desperation, please bring me some water. These guys have been laying there in this field for hours, bleeding out, getting ready to die, and here comes what people later on called the angel of Marie, Marie's Heights. This man, young man, he was 18 or 19 years old from South Carolina, And he sought to go minister to the practical needs of dying people. What he was doing was he was taking this passage into practice. Did that save him? No. If he was a believer, though, it showed the genuineness of his faith. It showed his love for God and for his neighbor. And he realized that his neighbor was his enemy at that time. But he realized that there was a genuine humanity there. And so perhaps you might consider your enemy to be someone who is wealthier than you, of a different skin color than you, of a different educational background than you. You say, that person's not worth my time. That attitude flies in the face of what this passage says. That attitude flies in the face of a disciple, in other words. You want to follow Jesus? We want you to follow Jesus. What does it look like to follow Jesus? Love God with your whole heart and love your enemy and love your neighbor who often is your enemy, as yourself. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we, as your people, want to follow you, desperately need your help to obey the commands of this passage. We could never be moral enough, be righteous enough, be Christian enough to earn your favor, to have some of our sins forgiven. These forgive none of our sins. Only the blood of Jesus can do that. And so we Give you thanks for what this passage teaches us, what this passage reveals to us, and particularly for the grace you've given us in Christ and in the gospel. We pray that we would be a church marked by love for insiders and outsiders, for those fellow church members, for those who walk in just one time and never again. Whatever the case may be, may you create in us a heart for others, for love for others. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.